0: Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. The stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and because He is risen, it is my honor to welcome you guys here and wish you a happy Easter. Uh, But more importantly, a happy Resurrection Sunday. And so the greatest claim in Scripture is that God raised his only son, Jesus of Nazareth, from the dead, and that he is alive right now. But I guess the question then is, is it possible for someone to come back from the dead? Uh, It reminds me of a story. There's a guy once who had a dog, and one day his dog came back uh, to his back porch, and he had his neighbor's uh, dead pet bunny rabbit in his mouth. Of course, this guy immediately was thinking, "Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, this is horrible. Um, I need to do something about this because I don't want my neighbor to get mad at me or angry with my dog." So he decided to take the the dead bunny rabbit into his bathroom, and he decided to turn on the faucet and he washed it down to clean it up a little bit, and he decided to uh, put some shampoo and clean off the fur, and, and then he uh, got it his hair dryer. Get it, hair? No, sorry, sorry. Uh, hair dryer. And uh, he, he combed him down. He got a brush and he combed his fur and his hair and cleaned them all up, dried them off. And he says, what am I going to do? I think I'm going to I'm going to hop over the fence. I'm going to walk back to the rabbit hutch and I'm going to open it up and I'm gonna put the dead bunny rabbit in there. And that's what he did. He went over and hopped over the fence and he went back to the backyard, opened up the hutch and he went into, into the hutch. He put the dead bunny rabbit in there. He locked the, the hutch and then he come back over the fence and he thought to himself, I did it. I got away with it. My neighbor will never know that my dog was involved with his dead pet bunny. So a few hours later, everything's going according to plan, and his neighbor comes home. and As as he would have it, he ended up going into his backyard, and as he approached his rabbit hutch, uh, he let out a blood curdling scream. Ah! And so this guy he walks up to his fence, really casual, and he looks over and he says, "Is is something the matter?" And the guy, pointing at the rabbit hutch, the cage, and the rabbit in the cage, he says, "My my bunny." 3 days ago he died. I buried him in the ground and now he's back. Now, is it possible? Is it possible that someone can come back from the dead? Um I mean that's the story. That's the claim that we're dealing with today. That God so loved the world that he became one of us, that he emptied himself, that he was born of the virgin Mary, born without the seed of sin, right? That he lived a perfect perfect and sinless life that he then allowed his innocent blood to be shed on a cruel cross for us. And the, then there's the claim that after he was dead in the ground, in the tomb, that he rose. Now, the, the Greek for he is risen is igero. If I say igero, igero, he is risen. That that literally means to rouse or to wake from the dead. right? And that's the claim, that, that that's what happened. And so here we are 2,000 years later. The question is, is what does that have to do with us? I mean, really, what what does it have to do? We're, we're, we're here today and... What does he he is risen, have to do with us? I mean, is he risen or is he not? And, you know, scripture that we just read, the passage we just read, actually says a lot about what that means. There's implications that if he is in fact alive or if he's not in fact alive. And so we take a look uh, in that passage we just read, verse 13, it says, when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and he forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So if he's not risen, then what's the apostle Paul trying to tell us? What does this mean? It means that, well, one, first of all, you and I are dead. Now, obviously not physically. I'm breathing. You you guys, I think, are still breathing. So we're all we're all physically alive. But, phys- but spiritually, it says that we're dead, that we're not alive, that, that we're in fact dead. It also means that we're in debt to God, that there's a debt to be paid because we, we've fallen short of the God of God's standards that he set out for us. We're not able to pay that. says we're also not in good standing with God, that we're at the mercies of the powers, the principalities, the evil forces of this world. We're at their mercy because they haven't been defeated. I mean, it's a pretty bleak picture that Paul is painting if, in fact, Jesus has not risen from the dead. In fact, he says something similar to another church that he wrote a letter to in Corinth, uh, Corinthians 1. He says in verse 15 of 17, he says, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile or worthless. Like it's it's literally worthless if he's not raised from the dead because you're still in your sins. So if Christ isn't risen, if he's not Aguero, then we're, we're really wasting our time. Like this is all just a big joke. I mean, that's what scripture tells us. I mean, it may make us feel better to do this, what we're doing now, and it maybe slightly might make us better people, right? But the reality is if he's not risen from the grave, then all of this is, 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 a joke. And in reality, we're just playing church. Now, if that's the case, we might as well stop, skip communion. Let's not do the baptisms. I'm sure that water's going to be cold, right? Let's just go right to food and drink. Let's just eat, drink, be merry, and try and get as much pleasure as we can out of this life, because in reality, that's all there is. Now I'm not prescribing that, but that's what scripture is prescribing to us. That if, if Jesus is in fact not risen, that that's basically what we're facing. So the good news is, on the other hand, that if he is, in fact, risen, if Jesus is Egero, then all the opposite of those early statements are true. That we're no longer dead, that we are alive in him and with him. That our debt has been canceled, that we are in this place of righteousness with God. that When he looks at us, he says, you're, you're righteous before me because you're in my son Jesus and what he's done. We're in good standing with him and that the, the evil forces of this world have ultimately been defeated. And that we are on the side of victory that because jesus conquered them and we are in him we stand in the place of victory Uh, first peter 1 3 another uh, book of the new testament says it like this blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ because of his great mercy he has given us one new birth and two a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead you see we've been given this incredible gift called rebirth that we've been allowed to be reborn, that our sins have been forgiven, a spiritual do-over, if you will, if in fact Christ is risen. And second, we do not live as people that don't have hope. So many in our world, so many people, I'm sure that you know, that I know, that they don't have hope. There's, there's nothing to cling to in their difficult situation they find themselves. And first Peter's telling us that that's not how we're supposed to live because of what God has done for us. We can live as people with ultimate hope, hope in the, in the living and resurrected Christ we ultimately have hope in God who reigns over all forces. He's the supreme power in all of existence and all the universe. That's who our God is. And so if he is risen, then we have the potential of new birth to be reborn spiritually. We also have the ability to live with a living hope. And so as I look at this and wrestle with this, it's just, to me, it seems that every person on the planet today has to wrestle with this claim, this Aguero, is he in fact risen? Because if he is, if he's alive, then his teaching his truth his life his death and his resurrection then ultimately don't they demand our very lives like everything that we have and if not if he is risen or if he's not risen then then ultimately we're just wasting time if he's not if he's not really alive now you probably can guess where i land on this you know issue and so really today just to make this very simple my my teaching is just to make one thing clear which is just to give you an invitation an invitation to say yes, that that I believe the Bible is really the word of God, that what it reveals to us is that it's true that he is in fact risen. Also to take the the millions of Christians of the last two millennia who have literally staked their lives on this claim, that have lived in such a way to say, I'm going to give everything to Jesus. I'm going to follow him because I believe that yes, he is in fact risen, that Jesus, King Jesus is alive. He's risen indeed. So that's the invitation. Now there's lots of ways we can respond to that. There's lots of probably views. There's a mixture in our gathering, probably of belief and of doubt and, and wrestling with this claim that is he really alive? Was he really able to conquer death? And so we're going to take a look in scripture, of uh, just really three different ways that we could respond to this invitation, to this claim. And to kind of help us frame it, we're going to look before, during, and after. So before Jesus's death, we're going to look at a story of someone who encountered Jesus at his death and then a group of people who after the resurrection, how they responded. Uh, let's see what was going on so before uh, first we're gonna take a look at this guy named nicodemus if you've ever read through the bible before you're probably familiar with this name um, everything we know about nicodemus from the scriptures comes from the gospel according to john and we see him three different times show up in scriptures um, this is a guy who was really close to rebirth really close to believing that jesus was alive but it seems as if fear ultimately cost him the the, the full ability to say yes to jesus to publicly follow him and we We need a little context to understand why it was hard for him. I mean, we know that, God bless you, uh, that he was a leader of the Jews, right? He was one of the Pharisees. This is the ruling class, the religious elite. Uh, And he was also part of the Sanhedrin, which was a a select council of those Pharisees who were in charge of things. They were the spiritual authority, and they would have had a Sanhedrin in many of the major cities. And so in Jerusalem, obviously, that would have been the the capital. So that would have been the most the highest authority, the highest council that you could have been on. So we know that Nicodemus was on that. So they had a lot of political power, legal power, even some, um, some governmental power. Although, remember, they're occupied by Rome, so they still have to appeal somewhat to the Roman authorities. And so we see this guy come to Jesus. The first time we encounter him is in John chapter 3. And it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And clearly, he's under the cover of darkness. He's not really wanting everyone to know uh, that he's going to talk to Jesus. And the first thing out of Nicodemus' mouth, he says, you must be from God because no one f- other than someone from God could do what you're doing. Like he pays Jesus a really nice compliment, but I could be like one of you coming up to me like, Hey, it was a really great message. Right. And so here's Jesus' response. He says, truly, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not like a thank you. Appreciate it. It's really nice of you. Right. He just kind of like, it's this gut punch response to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is like, oh, you know, you must be from God. And Jesus is like, you need to be born again if you really want to see the kingdom. And so Nicodemus is confused a little bit. And he's like, well, you mean I got to go back into my mother's womb? Like, how does that work? right he's, he's even a little incredulous and so jesus says no no aren't you a leader of the jews shouldn't i mean don't you read your bible like don't you know what i'm talking about and he's like i'm not talking about a physical rebirth i'm talking about a spiritual rebirth right and he, he kind of just flips the script on him and we see in this context that nicodemus he's, he's trying to trying to come closer to god but he's not quite there yet we got to remember that it's out of this context this very conversation is where we get the most famous passage in scripture all right this is where john three sixteen. Uh, For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's from this conversation that Jesus has with this religious leader. So fast forward a few chapters later, chapter seven, we see Nicodemus again. So the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they're trying to get Jesus arrested because he's teaching in a way that's drawing people, drawing a crowd. He's healing people. He's setting people free and people are drawn to him. And so the Sanhedrin are fearful that they're going to lose their power. And so they, they send out their guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus in one of these like amazing, like Jesus moves. He's like, he slips out of their grasp. I don't know exactly how that happened. Like if they had him in cuffs and he slipped out or what, but they're not able to arrest him. And so they come back and the leader's are like, why didn't you arrest him? And they're, they're, they're yelling at their guards, like what's going on. And so Nicodemus, our friend here, he pops up and he says, Hey, wait a minute. Isn't it according to our tradition? Don't, shouldn't we hear from Jesus himself first before we condemn a man? Like, shouldn't someone be able to give a defense of themselves? Now, you see a little bit of like, courage here out of Nicodemus. Like, he's trying to defend Jesus a little bit, but he's quickly and rudely dismissed by the rest of the council. They just shut him down like, Nicodemus, we've already made up our mind about this guy. You don't know what you're talking about. So then finally, we see Nicodemus one more time. And we see Nicodemus after Jesus has been, uh, been killed. There's a man named Joseph Arimathea, and he goes to Pilate, and he asks for Jesus' body to bury him. And it says that Joseph of Arimathea is also part of this same Sanhedrin. He's one of Nicodemus's peers on this council. And it says that of Joseph that he was a secret disciple of Jesus, that he was in fact following after Jesus, but he was doing so secretly because he was fearful of what the other leaders of the Jews might do to him. And so he asked for Jesus' body and Nicodemus is right there with him. He's assisting in this. And it says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and burial spices to aid and assist in the burial of Jesus. Would have been a very costly, extravagant, sacrificial gift to honor jesus so clearly there's a level of respect here that nicodemus has but the question we have to ask is like was he a true believer like what did nicodemus do after the resurrection like after he came out of the tomb unfortunately scripture is silent we don't know we don't know what what happened of him Um, but it appears on some level that nicodemus was like joseph of arimathea perhaps he too was a secret follower of jesus although it doesn't say that but the fact that he was there and he was assisting in the burial, maybe perhaps he was. And I wonder if, if maybe we can see a little bit of ourselves in Nicodemus. Like if there's a small part of us that's like that, where we're drawn to Jesus, right? We, we, we're inter, inter, interested in his teachings. We're certainly drawn to the way he lived his life, the way he was able to love people so sacrificially, the truth that he spoke. But there's, But there's something that's kind of keeping us from going all the way. Maybe it's another one of his teachings that we wrestle with. Maybe it's his radical generosity we have a hard time with, right? He told the rich young ruler, like sell everything and give to the poor and then you'll inherit eternal life Or maybe it's his sexual ethic. I mean, he just like doubles down on divorce when the leaders ask him, he's like, look, let nobody separate what God's brought together. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's his friendly or his enemy love that he commands us all to do, right? There's like someone in your life, you're like, I just can't forgive that person. God, don't ask me to forgive. Don't ask me of that, right? There's Maybe there's something. Or maybe like these guys, it's just just fear. Fear of what it may cost you if you say yes and go completely all in for Jesus. Maybe a, a reputation at work or a friendship or a family relationship, you're not sure what would happen if you were to boldly and publicly declare that you belong and, and want to fall after Jesus. And that's one way that we could respond to this, but you know what Jesus is inviting us to is He wants you to give everything to Him, every part of your life, even your open and your public life. He's asking for that from you. So that's one way we can respond to this uh, this fact that Jesus is alive. The second one we're going to take a look at is a guy um, that we know as simply the centurion. Um, this comes to us from Matthew 27. There's a lot of details about Jesus' his death, uh, his crucifixion, his burial, and it includes the mention of a guy that's a Roman soldier, a centurion, and says this. This guy says that after he sees Jesus die, truly this man was a son of God. Now, this is a man who would have presided over the deaths of many criminals. And yet none of those individual deaths had the circumstances and were marked by the things that happened at the death of Jesus. And so we're going to do something maybe a little different, perhaps a practice you've not done before. We're going to use our biblical imagination and we're going to just kind of imagine putting ourselves in the shoes of this man, this soldier. Imagine what it would have been like for him on that day when Jesus was, was put on trial, when he was tortured, crucified, and died. And so I'm gonna ask if you would, just to help you concentrate, if you just wanna close your eyes, um, just imagine yourself uh, that you're a, a Roman soldier and that you're in this army and you're an occupying force. No one wants you to be there. No one, no one likes you. You're in a foreign land with its own language, its customs and religion, and you're really far from the comfort of your own home, from your spouse, your kids. And you wake up on a Friday morning and you're just hoping, man, this has been a rough week. I'm just hoping today goes quick. This is Passover week. You know, there's all kinds of activity. There's been a lot of tension in the air. I'm just hoping I can get through this day quickly, get to my weekend and maybe just get a little bit of rest. As you put on your your armor and you leave your quarters, you leave the barracks, you sense there's this tension. It's palpable in the air. Something ominous feels like it's coming. Shortly after you collect, you clock in, you're immediately called out to the city square, and as you approach, there's this angry mob and an uproar about a man that they say is claiming to be their king. And you're fighting the crowds back, and people are starting to throw things, and you're thinking, okay, this this might get really ugly here pretty quick. And then this Jesus, he shuttled over to a, a man named Herod, and then he comes back to your governor, Pilate, and back again. And finally, after this back and forth all day, Pilate declares and uh, that this man's gonna be handed over to crucifixion you know exactly what this means for you. You're about to go to work. You're about to do what you've been trained to do, what you and your men are good at. You're responsible now for carrying out this execution. So you and your men, you beat this man. You strip him naked. You whip him with a cat of nine tails. You mock him. And after the the brutal beating, you you drag him back and you put a, a robe around him, this purple robe. You mock him, like making fun of him that he's some kind of a king. And you fashion a a crown out of thorns and you smash it on his head and yet through all of this this man never once complains he shows a meekness you've never seen he never offers a defense or pleads for mercy so now you have to get this man up to the site of the crucifixion so you put the cross on his back but he's so weak from the beating he can't even make it so you've got to grab someone from the crowd to help him get that get up the hill you get up to the top of the hill, you put nails through his hands and his feet. You get him up on the cross. He's finally crucified. And normally this is when things would quiet down, but something unusual happens. All of a sudden people start throwing insults at him. All these passerbyers and onlookers, the religious leaders are just hurling insults after left and right. Even the guys on his left and right, the two other criminals, they're making fun of him. I mean, you can't remember a more celebrated death in all your time serving as a soldier. After he's been up there for a minute, it's about midday. It's noon now, and an unnatural darkness falls on the whole land. It's just eerie. It almost sense this evil is in the air. It lasts for three hours. Finally, three in the afternoon, this man he cries out to God, whom he calls and addresses his father, as daddy, and he dies. Immediately, the ground begins to shake, and you're wondering what's happening. All of a sudden, a great earthquake erupts and you look around and the burial tombs around are starting to open up and there's people who are formerly dead are walking out of these tombs and you're thinking what in the world is happening it's almost as if creation is undoing itself now you're no stranger to death you've seen many die before but none quite like this this was no ordinary death and this was no ordinary man you look up at the sign above his head that reads king of the jews suddenly a great fear grasps your throat and your heart at what you've just been a part of you can't help but utter the words, truly, this man was the Son of God. If you haven't already, you can go ahead and open up your eyes. Now, this man wasn't looking for God, and yet God found him right in the middle of his workday. As he was going about his business, God met him there, and I wonder, is has God been trying to get your attention lately as well? I mean, perhaps that interruption this past week really was an interruption after all. Perhaps God was just trying to get your attention, and Maybe he was just lovingly showing up in the middle of your day trying to reveal himself to you. Now, one response to this idea that Jesus is alive, that he is risen, would be to not recognize him as a son of God. And many people today refuse to believe that Jesus is the son of God, despite the evidence and the the two thousand years of history that's followed after and this this thing called the Christian faith and the church, which is yet to be defeated. Yet this centurion, even before the resurrection had happened, believed that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. He believed because of what Jesus said and because of what he saw with his own eyes. And so that's where you're at. If you're in that place where you're struggling, then I would just say, perhaps maybe it's time that you would come and see for yourself and just grab a Bible. They're not hard to find and and open up to one of the gospels and start reading and see if perhaps as you read the letters on the page, as you read about the life of Jesus, the things he said, the things he did, perhaps that God would meet you in that place and reveal himself to you that in fact he is the son of God. So that's before that's during now part three we'll take a look at some believers after a group of believers that after the death and resurrection of Jesus there's a, a small church in this place called Colossae uh, where we got our, our, our t- teaching text from and this is a young church and in the midst of their uh, new faith that they're walking out they're being tested right there's some some false teachings some heresies that are coming in and they're starting to get off track a little bit and so uh, Paul is an apostle. He's writing to this church. Um, now, this church wasn't founded by Paul. It was founded by a man named Epaphras, who is a fellow church planter and missionary. He was a peer of Paul. They did a lot of missionary work together. And so he's just commending them. He says, listen, man, I've, I've heard about your faith. I heard about your love of the other saints and your faithfulness. I just want to I want to thank you and encourage you. But I also want to encourage you to, to just grow a little bit. It's time to mature and grow a little bit in your in your spirituality. And maybe that describes some of us today. You know, we've we've said yes to this idea that Jesus is alive. We've said yes to Aguero; he is risen. Uh, we've said yes to the claims of this wounded healer and of this uh, resurrected King, and we've given Jesus our lives—at least the best that we know how. And so today, we're we're being encouraged: Hey, let's let's grow a little bit. Let's step into a mature place in our faith. But unfortunately. For this church there's some false teaching that slipped in there's some some things that have been added in and as paul refers to them as arguments that sound reasonable or these empty philosophies or things that appeal to human traditions he says don't get caught up in that stuff right it's it's false teaching trying to add to the gospel trying to add some additional things and of course we face the same temptation today there's so many competing ideologies that are out there that want to get our allegiance uh, whether it's secular materialism, or politics as religion, or gender dysphoria—all these, just to name a few—are things that are claiming to want your allegiance. Say this is how you get to the fulfilled life, the true life. That you have to subscribe to some of these ideologies, and it makes it more difficult for us today because we have these things called uh, technology and screens that are literally designed by really smart people to to hack into our psychology and to manipulate us to uh, give our attention to these things. And of course. We know that whatever we give our attention to, whatever we think about, that's ultimately what we become. And so what Paul is saying to to this church and what's applicable to us today is there are some ways that we can resist. What's up, buddy? We can resist some of these uh, competing thoughts and ideologies. So the first thing that Paul does is he reminds them about the centrality of Christ. There's this poem at the beginning of of Colossians. It starts in uh, chapter one, verse 15. It's one of the most beautiful poems about Jesus that we get in our New Testament. And Paul says, listen, just I want you to be remember, reminded that Jesus, everything was made by him, everything was made through him, everything was made for him. And this same Christ, this same Jesus, he's holding it all together. Like he is the thing that's the, the most powerful thing in the universe that's holding us all together. Don't forget that. He lays that foundation for them. And oh, by the way, the fullness of God, who we've we've been waiting for, he showed up in the body and in the life of Jesus. He's fully there. And then he gives them a four-step process. I'm not sure I'm going to compete with this guy. <laughs> There's a four-step process that he gives to these Colossians. And so um, I'm just going to, again, pick up the text in verse 6, second Col- Colossians chapter 2. It says, So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. So the first thing he tells this church is, listen, if you want to grow, if you want to mature, Don't forget, keep walking in Christ. That if you were saved by faith, then so you need to walk by faith. If you were saved by the word, then continue to walk in the word. If you were saved by the spirit, then continue to walk in the spirit. The Christian life, it continues just as it began. So the first thing he tells them, look, keep walking in faith. Keep following after Jesus. The second thing he tells them in verse seven is to grow up a little bit in Christ. It says being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Listen, dig down deep roots into the richness of God's word. I mean, the average amount of time we spend on our screens is somewhere from like five to eight hours. And I think that includes like laptops. If you work on one, like every day, that's average for people to be on their devices. And sure, some of that's work, but some of that's for just pleasure or distraction or what have you. And and many of us, we're we're just getting by by maybe opening up our Bibles maybe every other morning for a few minutes, five minutes here, ten minutes there. We we can't hope to compete when we're exposing ourselves so much just if you look at the time spent on one area of our life versus time spent here. And Paul's saying, look, of course, he's not dealing with that at this time, but he's saying you need to be rooted in the Word of God. That's where your foundation has to come from. If you want to resist religious philosophies and these ideas that are going to come at you You've got to be rooted in Christ, grounded in his word, and built up in biblical truth. He says, it's time for you to spend more time there. The third step that he gives them after saying, look, keep walking in your faith, be built up in Christ, grow in him. He says, make Christ the test. He needs to be the standard. He needs to be your North Star with whatever is coming into your life. He says, test every high-sounding religious system by asking one simple question. Does this give Christ preeminence? Does this ultimately point me to Jesus? Now there's a lot of religious ideas out there and most of them give jesus an eminent place meaning you're it's hard to find someone who doesn't like jesus i mean if you actually read what he said and thought about his life most people don't have an issue with jesus usually it's those that are following after him that they have issue with which get it fair enough but no one typically has a problem and most people say yeah he was a good prophet he was a wise sage certainly he was a very you know respected religious person but only True biblical Christianity gives him the place of preeminence, of firsts. That he's the first, that that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, he's king of kings, he's lord of lords. Christianity is the only one, and so he has to be the test. So when you're struggling with some of these ideas, do I give in to this, do I believe some of these things, just that litmus test has to be, well, is this giving Christ the place of preeminence? Is it putting him first in this this thought? And the final thing he tells him is, listen, draw on the fullness of God. Draw on his fullness, verses 9 through 10. He says, listen, there's no substitute for Christ and that in him we have everything we could possibly need. Oftentimes, as believers, we drift away and into worldly living and we fall prey to these man-made systems. It's usually because we lack the belief that we can find everything we need in Jesus. We buy into this lie that Jesus can't supply everything we need. That's typically when we find ourselves getting off track. But notice uh, what it says. In verse 9 it says the entire fullness of god's nature dwells bodily in christ and you have been filled by him other translations say you have been completed by him or in him that everything you could possibly want is found in jesus and he's reminding the church that he says listen don't don't buy into these other things that are trying to draw you away from that he's going to give you everything you need you don't need to look elsewhere for that And anything that says that we're not complete in christ it's realized that's taking away from the deity of jesus because the only way that it can be true that we find everything in Jesus is if, in fact, he is God. The, the God who made us, the God who knit us together in, in the wombs of our mothers, the one who knows every hair in our head, who has more thoughts about us than all the grains of sand in all the earth, he's the only one that can actually give us everything that we need. It's only possible because he is God. If he's not God, then we need to go find additional things outside of Jesus. And, and maybe you're in a place where you're saying, listen, Jesus, I'll follow you. But please don't ask me for my online shopping habit. Like don't don't touch that. I need that. It gives me my peace from a stressful day. I'm not talking to you, Raul, directly. You seem like you're shaking his head. Are you getting like elbows? I don't know if that was the Holy Spirit or your wife, but um, or maybe you're saying, Jesus, don't ask me to forgive that person. Like I just I, I can't go there. I just can't. They hurt me too deeply, too badly. You just don't understand. Or maybe are saying, Jesus, I'll give you my time. I'll go around the world and serve for you, but don't ask to be involved with my spending habits or where I go with my money. Or Jesus, I'll give a bunch of money to the church, but you know my, my media consumption, my social media consumption, what I do on my, my downtime, Like, the, sorry, that's off limits. You can't have that. You see, anytime we do that, anytime we say Jesus plus something else, we're saying, Jesus, I don't believe your claims that you're actually God and you can fulfill me completely. That's what we're saying. And Paul's reminding the church, as he's reminding us today, listen, you're going to find everything you need in him. He is your fullness. You'll be complete in him and him alone. Anywhere else is a waste of time. Unless we get off track, because we all do, we all fall prey to these things, just a couple of things, just be reminded of what he's already done for you. we read that earlier in verse 12, that before Jesus was raised from the dead, before we were raised to life in him, we were dead. Again, not physically, but spiritually, we were dead. And there's lots of ways the Bible talks about men and women that are far from God. And certainly being dead is one of the strongest, right? But it's true that, you know, if you're a sick person, you may need a doctor, but if you're dead, the only thing that works for you is a savior. Like that's the only cure for that ill. If you're dead, you need a savior. There's no, no other way to get out of that one. And be reminded too, that dead people can't resurrect themselves. It's only by the power of God. And even Paul reminds us that that is is simply by faith. You have to just have the faith that God can raise you from the dead. That's only where that comes from. And in Romans, he says it like this, to believe that Jesus raised from the dead isn't just to believe and have faith in Christ, it's to believe in faith of the God who raised him from the dead, right? It's to believe in the the power of a God who brings back the dead to life. You see, God is the God of resurrection. God is the one who brings things back alive again. That's what he's in the business of doing. And so maybe there's something in your life that's dead right now. Right? maybe it's a dream maybe it's a career aspiration maybe it's a relationship maybe it's a financial situation but to believe that god raised jesus from the dead is to believe that god can also bring that back to life as well that's what we say when we believe that he is the king and the and the god of resurrection that he can bring those things back to life and i, and I think that's important to remember that as we, we we worry that maybe he doesn't have everything for me and one of the things that struck me as i read through this in preparation was just the grammar that Paul uses here right when he talks about that they were dead and now alive that they had trespasses that weren't forgiven but now have been forgiven all the, the language from Paul is past tense he said listen it's already been done you've already been raised to life you've already been brought back through baptism you've already uh, through faith been forgiven these are all things that have been done for you he's not talking about a future, future resurrection he's talking about the present life today You see, many times we think about coming back from the dead, we do think physically, like what happens after I die? And that's a good question. But Paul's not even talking about that now. He's talking about the life that we get to live right now, because everything that we could have gained from his death and resurrection are already ours to possess. Like the power that raised Jesus from the dead has given us the the promise of rebirth spiritually. It's given us new hope in this life that we live right now, not in the life to come. And it's true that divine power at one point will take us out of this realm of suffering and tribulation and bring us to a place of eternal joy with god where there's no more tears there's no more pain there's no more crying those things are so far past what we will experience that will happen one day but we we can't just wait for that day we have to remember that the resurrected life begins right now that god has given us that promise right now that we can live a life of union and fellowship with the risen jesus that as we go through the struggles of our life as we, we, we have a, a fight with a coworker, as we lose a close family member, as we go through these things that Jesus saying, listen, that rebirth, that living hope is yours right now. But that same power is with you. And there's lots of things probably in, in your life that have happened since you followed Jesus, if you're following him. And I've, I know many of your stories and many of you, and you've seen miraculous things. You've seen incredible healings. You've seen financial breakthroughs. You've seen people freed from the demonic. I mean, there's lots of things that God can do, but none of that compares to the power that we Receive when he raised Jesus from the dead and the gifts that came from that for our life that we live right now. The question is, is what I brought up was, are you going to say yes to that invitation because Jesus is never going to force himself upon you. He's never going to demand that you follow him. It will always be by invitation. It will always be by choice because it has to be by faith. It can't be by force of will. It has to be a choice to believe, to believe Aguero, to believe that he is risen and that I want to walk with his risen savior. I want to live my life surrender to this king who's come back from the grave, who can bring me new life now and can bring me hope for the life to come. That's what it looks like. And, you know, it's Jesus often talked in parables and, you know, and he says the kingdom is like this. And this invitation is like that. It's it's so you know, imagine that someone calls you up and says, Listen, I know you've been wanting to go on a on a on a vacation. I know life's been a little stressful for you. And so I've arranged for a trip. I've arranged for a trip to go uh, to a destination you've always wanted to go for, and want to visit, and um, the flight's taken care of. When you get there, they're going to have your your name on like a little piece of paper. You know, you've always wanted that. They're going to give you a ride to your hotel, and everything's taken care of there for you as well. And all the excursions you want to go on, those are taken care of. It's all inclusive. The food's paid for. Um, that's all taken care of as well. Um, and it's all been paid for. But the thing is, you gotta you gotta drive down to the airport. And you got to go to the ticket counter and you got to tell them your name and tell them that that i gave that for you because i am not going to send it to your house i'm not going to come pick you up like you've got to take the effort you've got to go there and you've got to claim that ticket and and that's the question are we going to do that like that's the offer that jesus has is listen i want to take you on an adventure that you'll 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 never you'll never regret and of course along the way he's going to change the itinerary and he's going to take you somewhere you maybe didn't think you wanted to go and and maybe stay in a hotel you didn't really want to stay in and do some things you'd rather not do but yet if you didn't go on that trip that's going to happen to you anyway the question is would you rather be with him would you rather be with jesus in those moments or not so that's the invitation today do you want to say yes will you drive down and will you pick up that ticket that he has waiting for you